welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is, quite simply, hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates, you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Hungry Authors Podcast. We are super psyched um, to have our guest cat on today i am actually live on mic going to um abstain from saying your last name because i'm scared i'm gonna say it wrong out loud so i'm gonna let her introduce herself right off the bat cat please introduce yourself to our audience real quick sorry my last name is such a mouthful okay. uh, no one can ever figure out the provenance or anything anyway i'm katherine badmakera i'm a nonfiction writer I read a Substack. My first book came out in 2021, and that's me. Awesome. Um, for some background, I took um, a course taught by Kat um, in partnership with Jane Friedman um, not too long ago about building a platform. And you guys, if you've consumed any of our content, you know that Ariel and I talk about platform a lot and um, know the importance of one. But sometimes um, rub up against the conventional advice that you hear in the publishing world about how you have to have a minimum of 100,000 followers and, you know, numbers are what matters. And a lot of this uh, thinking around platform that mostly um, rests on social media. And what I heard Kat talking about in this uh, course that I took was basically not that. Um, and you are a self-described person who doesn't like to be on camera and seems like doing social media stuff isn't really like your favorite thing. So just kick off this conversation. Tell me how you think about platform. Yeah, it's a big question. And I believe that it will vary from person to person, but you're right. I don't, we're on camera right now and I'm definitely not complaining. It's just, it's not, I always say like, if we were natural born for performers, we wouldn't be writers. You know, I, I do my best thinking and my best performance when I'm writing. And I wouldn't say I'm the person with the highest standards in the world, but it's hard for me to just go completely off the cuff. It's just not my nature. The register does not feel natural to me. And this was obviously a huge problem because when you want to publish traditionally, you often hear these things from agents, from publishers, and anyone else you're going to talk to that you need this vast platform. But I think you're right. It gets defined so narrowly just to mean social media followers. But I think if we were going to talk about it more broadly, it's when I think about it, it's almost like how far would you go? Like, how far would you go for a Kit Kat, in this case, a book deal and a career as an author? And it turns out, like, I will go very far out of my comfort zone because I want it that badly. I will at least have a social media presence. I will do things on camera. I'll do public speaking, though I don't love those things. And I think it's more of a, like, when I was coming up, getting an agent, getting a publisher, and then in the process of selling my book, I saw platform at each stage. And the interesting thing was when it matters most is when you're in the sales stage, at least in my experience, like that is where the rubber meets the road, like anybody would guess. 
And when you really start seeing these efforts translate into sales or lack of sales. So for me, like at that stage, what I was working off of was like, I had this vast spreadsheet where I had put down everyone in the literary world I know, every possible podcast I might do, every possible outlet I might write for, anyone I might get in touch with to ask for favors and the rest of it. And that was essentially the plat, like a very literal platform that I was working off of, which was just a Google sheet. Wow. Okay. So when you say sales, you don't necessarily mean sales, like selling to an agent or to a publisher. You mean like sales on the, the back end, like the book is published and now we are getting the book into readers' hands. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what yeah. it is. And it's on sale. It is publication day. You have your little launch party and then it's out in the world and you're hustling. I mean, mm. hustling in a very real way. Wow. So did you run into a lot of ages? Can, can you like tell us a little bit more about you know, your process, did you get an agent and then did the agent kind of represent you to publishers? And like, how did you kind of go about that process as someone, you know, who at the time had a pretty small platform? Super modest platform, even to call it a platform is maybe overstating things. I always wanted to write fiction. So I wrote three novels in 10 years. And I, at that point I was still refusing to do the platform stuff. It didn't feel natural to me. I didn't want it. So I refused to, and I never could find an agent or a publisher. And then I started freelance, uh, doing a lot of freelance journalism and freelance writing. And I was getting more comfortable with a public mode of speaking that just wasn't tweeting or posting pictures on Instagram. And at that point I had, like I work in marketing full time. So I love writing headlines and subject lines and that sort of thing. So I was starting to have reasonable success with writing grabby clickbait headlines, apparently, and having articles gain some traction online. So as I was going about that, this one piece I wrote for the millions about Edgar Allan Poe really caught fire within the literary world. It got picked up by LitHub's Daily Digest, and it was liked by a lot of prominent people in the literary world. So I thought, you know, maybe there's a book here. And that's when I really started chasing this nonfiction book idea I put together the proposal and I started talking to agents and what I had to tell them about my platform at that point was like, Hey, I've written for XYZ publications. I've been on XYZ podcasts. Uh, this idea has already been proven in the marketplace. You can see there's an audience for this treatment of Poe with a kind of like internet humor. Um, so those pieces were adding up to something like platform, but even so, where he's the first agents I talked to, like the first one I signed with who had liked my story on Twitter, that's why I approached her. She did not care about platform in the least. She just asked me if I had a website and we went out uh, to 16 huge imprints at once. And that's when I heard about platform because we got rejected by every single one. Um, the, a very, very large publishing house that figures in a lot of people's fantasies told me no, because I had 600 Twitter followers. Like that was the stated reason to my agent. Others said, she's just another internet essayist. I have no idea how to break this out. Well, the end result was a 16 round rejection when we thought a sale was going to be very quick and very big. So at that point, I was just kind of picking myself up off the floor and trying to figure out what it was gonna take from here to seal this deal. So I switched agents. I took the idea in a more mass market direction. I put a lot of effort into at least appearing to have a Twitter presence. 
I continued to write pieces about it. I continued to like do interviews about Poe and do some public speaking kinds of things, talking to Poe scholars. I just kind of, you know, beating the pavement like you do when you're a journalist. And that was what we ultimately presented to publishers and helped us get over the line. Though I will say, I never got to a point where I had this humongous platform, but one way I did start to get around that was in the course of this journalism and in the course of the platform building and so on, I'd met other authors who were much bigger than me and were willing to vouch for me and give me early blurbs. And I'm pretty sure that those had a very significant role in selling the book because before I added those, we'd been rejected by 22 imprints. And then once we did add a page of blurbs at the beginning of the proposal, we went to auction and we had three bidders. So it did turn things around and it wasn't always my platform. Sometimes if you can kind of ride coattails, I think you can get further than you might otherwise. At least that's been my experience. Yeah. And one of my favorite um, posts that you wrote in your, in, I think it was in your newsletter, is how your like the ultimate version of this is literally riding on Poe's coattails, basically. You know? How like, you're, you're like, I never had a huge platform, but Edgar Allan Poe does. So, mm-hmm. you know, let me, he's got a huge audience, even though he's been long dead, which is just, uh, you know, something I'm sure you didn't set out to do intentionally. That was just a natural interest of yours, but it turns out that that was just this huge um, lever you could pull, you know? Um, so I want to hit on something, um, that you talked about there that I found really fascinating, uh, in the course too, of course, in, you went into all kinds of other ways to grow platform. That's not social media, um, you know, bylines, even like Reddit, Quora, all kinds of stuff like that. But the two things that I, um, that seem really relevant here are the bylines. You know, I know you did a lot of, of course, the initial um, piece that gained traction and provided credibility or, you know, a proof concept for your idea. Um, but you'd been freelancing before, and I imagine you did a lot after, um, you know, when you were actively querying and, and pitching. Um, and then network, network building. Like these are two huge pieces of platform building, which doesn't even feel like a great term for that part of it, it's almost more like credibility is getting bylines. If you just like to write and you want to write, then write, you know, like the social media piece is its own thing. But also if you just want to write and you want to make author friends, that in itself is a huge asset and has this added benefit that I don't think enough writers or aspiring writers consider that is Social media has its own uh, credibility to it, I suppose. But when you've been published by reputable publications, somebody else has endorsed your work and your talent. And that is, and and like when you get blurbs by other, um, you know, known authors, that is a huge asset to editors. I mean, that's just a providing, you know, some vouching for you as a, as an actual writer, not just how your idea or how well, you know, your topic, but how well you can actually write and execute. And that's hugely valuable. Don't you think? I definitely think so. We almost might think of platform in just a larger sense of resume building because being an author is very much a job, 
But I will say, as someone who's worked in marketing for a long time, there's actually a term for when acceptance by other people makes someone want to accept you or encourages someone to accept you. It's called social proof. It's why there are testimonials and ads. It's why, you know, people try to uh, present it as a pop, present a consumer choice as a popular choice or the number one choice. It's why, you know, retailers fight to be seen as, you know, a, a beloved brand. All these things are just forms of social proof that make other people feel like, oh, this person's already been accepted. So I think bylines can really do that. They can also give you little wins along the way because it's so freaking hard. It is so freaking hard to get a book deal, but you can become a more widely published author almost no matter whether you get that book deal or not. Um, it's true what you said about post platform too. I mean, when I was in the auction phase, you get on the phone with editors and you tell them a little bit about your vision and they tell you a lot about their vision for this. But I had a whole spiel, it was, you know, Poe has been dead for 172 years, at least he was at that point. And he has more Facebook fans than uh, Danielle Steele or Scott Patterson. So, I mean, he's a humongous presence, right? I don't have 4 million Facebook fans, but he absolutely does. And that's just the public page. There are all these, I listed them out in my book proposal, these smaller Poe fan groups with 40,000 people here and 10,000 people here uh, that I could get into and start talking to people about the book and that sort of thing too. So I think I just tried to make it clear what channels I'm going to use. But between me and you guys, I, Ryan Holiday gave me an early blurb and I think publishers saw it and were like, we're going to put this on the cover and that really helped sell it. So yes. I, that credibility piece coming from other people who look substantially better than you do, uh, at least better than I did, uh, can really, really be helpful. And That's then so smart. Like, 2 million followers on Instagram. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's so smart. It's interesting too, when you were chatting before about, you know, Twitter and you were trying really hard to like, at least make it look like you were active on Twitter. And I wonder how much this reliance on social media is going to change going forward because like Twitter doesn't even exist anymore. Right. You know, it's recently become X and like, who knows what's going on. It's just so interesting to me. I know that a lot of publishers have learned the lesson that social media followers does not necessarily equal book sales. I certainly learned that as an acquisitions editor myself, but now I think it's like, we just cannot ignore that. We just, we like publishing is going to have to figure out other ways, you know, to, to quantify if they must insist on quantifying audience, <laughs> there's going to have to be other ways. And I love the way that you thought so creatively about that. I it was coming from a place of desperation and a long journey of getting to this. But another thing I did was there are four Poe houses and museums in the U.S. So I said, mm. I'm going to go speak at every single one of these. Every single one has a book, like has a gift shop. And I've shopped in these. I know I see other Poe fans shopping for Poe items. I found websites that sell just Poe gifts, like gifts for Poe fans. I went on Amazon and I pulled images of other Poe gifts that are already on the platform and selling well. And I put those like the picture, the screenshots in my book proposal, just to prove that there's already a huge market for this. I mean, demand had been, has been strong for works on Poe and by Poe for 200 years. But uh, to be clear, this was not obvious to me at the beginning. It was like an 18 month process of refining the argument. Right, right. Yeah. It even got me thinking about um other books that I've read, like uh, I read this 
fun memoir called uh, This Is Not a Book About Benedict Cumberbatch uh, by Tabitha Carvin. Ariel, did you read that one? Or did I you? haven't read it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's so fun and like, I want to say cute, which I don't mean to be like reductive to that author, but it's just really, it's a great, it's a fun book. Um, it's as fun as like you would think it is about the title. Um, but anyway, and I also happened, I just, I heard about it because um, I worked with Lucinda Halpern on her book that's coming out next year. She's a literary agent called Get Signed and we talked to Tabitha's agent. Yeah, her agent and said um, she didn't have a platform either. Um, and she she was just one of our great examples of an agent who signed a writer just basically based on the idea. Like, I don't even think Tabitha had any social media um, presence. And she um, in the book, we we make the point that um, agents still sign people just based on the strength of their idea. It's always great to have a lot of this other stuff, you know, platform network all this kind of stuff but it does happen that that if you just have a great idea and great writing but anyway so i'm sure you know tabitha is incredibly talented but now having met you of course and hearing your story i'm like well it was called this is not a book about benedict cumberbatch do we not think that benedict cumberbatch being one of the biggest most famous actors in the world didn't have something to do with the circulation of this book you know like he has a humongous platform i think you're like the point is that it doesn't necessarily have to be your platform. It can be your topics platform, right. which is a nice, it takes the attention off you, which is really nice too for introverted writers who don't necessarily want to have a huge public life. Right, right, yeah. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about that, um, you know, you mentioned in the course that I found incredibly refreshing and just took the pressure off a little bit was one of the initial strategies that you um and i just air quoted on this audio platform um i uh oh you said one of the strategies that you don't initially recommend on social media is going for organic growth it is too hard it is too time consuming. It's a whole skill in and of itself to learn how to do it well. And so not that at some point you shouldn't try, but at the beginning, just get some followers, you know, just do the minimum viable amount, which is, I just found refreshing because, you know, you inquire in the publishing um, industry, everyone's got their own sort of benchmark a lot of them are even sort of cagey about it and won't say some just flat out on their website say if you have don't have less than ten thousand or a hundred thousand even don't even come to us blah 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 but you said it and and i'll say it here and then of course we can edit it out if we decide to but you were like i stopped hearing the platform rejection at around three thousand followers which again i was just like somebody finally gave a ballpark number everyone's different but if you've got about that, you're generally seen as legit, you know? And like a fairly realistic number right. rather than realistic. like a hundred thousand and I've got 700. That's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I said that I said a number because I hate that too, where you're like, you don't, you know, there's a goal, but no one ever states the goal, which is just right. so frustrating and so that is genuinely true. At 600 Twitter followers, I heard about it and I got rejections by huge houses. 
At 3,000, the objection stopped coming up. And I, I tend to think um, in terms of, a, a, of possible objections because of my career in marketing, like mm -hmm. the way they teach you how to do things is to consider the prospects, possible objections and address them ahead of time. So lack of social media following was a top one for me since I really didn't have one. And I also think like, A, every single person in the world is trying to grow it through content, right? That is the only path you ever hear about. Whereas if you just start following people and seeing if they follow you back or participating in some of the like follow back exercises that happen on some of these platforms, you can start to rack up followers. And the interesting thing is when you start to hit a couple of thousand, you do find like-minded people. You do start getting engagement just through the sheer power of numbers. You start to get reactions to your tweets, which are way more encouraging than just shouting into the void with 500 followers. And more people, it's more social proof. Like I was saying, like if 3,000 people follow you, other people are more willing to follow you, thinking you must have something to say, even if you don't. Uh, because I'm not, I'm not great at Twitter. I'm not at all in any, in any stretch of the imagination, am I? But I've resigned myself to having to do something, even if Twitter or X or whatever disappears tomorrow. You know, I'll just have to rebuild it somewhere else. Yeah. I think it's okay too to like talk about how much you hate social media. <laughs> it also feels like a taboo that we just need to kind of get rid of too. Oh yeah, for sure. So I want to ask you, you have a super awesome Substack newsletter. How do you feel about Substack compared to like traditional social media platforms? Substack attracts such, such a higher quality of interaction, engagement, yeah. and just person. Like people are so much more real when you address them by long, sincere, sometimes funny email emails. It's almost, you know, I grew up writing long emails to my friends. It feels very natural to me. And in the writing world too, that's like easy to write some of this kind of service journalism where you're talking about, hey, here's how I did it which is valuable information for other people. I certainly seek out that kind of content myself. So it, Substack feels comfortable to me. And it also has led to more conversations, actual book sales, uh, connections with other people and getting engaged in their writing too. Just as a community, like I'm not huge on Substack either, but it's so much more like the quality is so much higher than on a Twitter or any other platform I've found. I don't know if that's strictly true for everyone, but also I'm going to keep talking about marketing, but I worked in email marketing for 12 years before this. And among marketers, it's, it's the gold standard. It's where you want to be inboxes rather than trying to like get clicks off internet ads. Email itself, like on a dollar basis is just much more valuable. So that's, that can sound cold, but that's the training that I have. And it's been borne out by my experience in it too. Yeah. Do you have um, any idea? I know sometimes this can be hard to measure, but do you have any idea how much your platform or what part of it contributed most to the sales of your book, like especially initially? I will say there were major components. Uh, Reddit played a a big role. I've been on Reddit for a while participating in the post subreddit, which has 3,500 people. 
sometimes not just kind of lurking as well as contributing here and there. I had seen my articles put, like pop up on this subreddit. So that's why I joined and started participating. And then um, I just kind of got more and more used to Reddit and it felt comfortable to me. So when the book came out, I did an official Reddit, ask me anything. And we got a million uniques in the first 24 hours. And again, I wasn't pitching this as I'm so interesting, ask me questions about me. It was all about Poe and it was time for the anniversary of his death. So he's very much top of mind and in the media. So this thing, it, it, it blew up in a way I did not anticipate. It led to, we saw a significant sales spike that day and several days afterward. It led to a couple of podcast invitations. I heard from people, I just actually getting emails and Facebook DMs from readers or people who had bought the book. Um, that went very well. I will say, um, knowing people who have big platforms or just having made friends over the years with people who do going on their podcasts or here's a you want to hear a wild story a friend of mine andy manages this awesome independent bookstore here in richmond virginia and she sells my book we're buddies so i often hear little stories from her about so and so buying it especially tourists or something since poe is a poe is from richmond so there's a local connection Anyway, this, um, the lead singer of a band who's quite big came into the bookstore and she sold him the book. He reached out to me and ended up blurbing it, which was the wildest freaking thing, but it just came through like a literary friendship that you wouldn't expect weird payoffs. There can be, but it's kind of like when you're in this, when you put work into developing a network of friends and it flows both ways very much so. Uh, these kind of weird little things can come through. So influential people plugging it, uh, like in that case, he he posted about it on Instagram and it got like 30,000 likes and crazy wow. things like that coming. Um, and then I just pounded the pavement on speaking at Poe events, speaking to local book clubs in a lot of church basements. And mm -hmm. I spoke to the Daughters of the American Revolution and all sorts and doing a lot of just uh, bootstrapping it, I guess, and trying to get in the hands of readers. I didn't actually have much luck working in those Poe online fan groups on Facebook, even though that's one of his biggest presences in social media, um, in part because the groups are pretty tightly controlled. So I would say that is one channel Facebook groups that I did not see payoff in a way I thought. Um, and I haven't seen any other remarkable social media payoffs through my own accounts at all. I think it's possible that followers just don't really, aren't really a, an indicator of sales. Right. Which is so weird though, because, you know, that's what everyone thinks, thinks it takes to get first an agent and then a book deal. And then once you get those things, you know, obviously you write the, you write the book, but then um, when it comes to sales and getting the word out, it often comes down to all kinds of different things you know it just some of this makes no sense but um i wanted to go back to um okay so networking you know you talked about like obviously the ryan holiday blurb you are on his podcast the you know singer thing was basically random but you know a lot of leading up to um to your book launch you had a lot of notable you know you had notable connections that i imagine you'd been uh you know, you'd had for a while or been, uh, you know, authentically building for a while. Most people don't just like make best friends with Ryan Holiday, like 
right before their book comes out. But so tell me how you, um, how did you go about that, you know, network building, finding other writers to support you, um, you know, even Ryan Holiday specifically, like how did some of those relationships come about? Well, with uh, Ryan Holiday, I'd been a big fan of his books on stoicism. I love the obstacle is the way. And I read Perennial Seller when I was writing my book proposal and there's his email addresses at the back of it. And he says, reach out. So I did that. And that's how I met him. Um, and he just turns out to be an incredibly generous, nice person. Um, so that, that was, yeah. So I always say like cold email your heroes and see how that goes. I've had a lot of luck doing that. Just writing sincere fan emails like, hey, I love your work and I'm not trying to get anything out of this interaction. <laughs> That's not, I'm not saying we do these things simply to do that. You do it because you're a fan. But if you keep up a correspondence for long enough, um, in that case, he ended up reading my book proposal. Um, in other cases, another way that I've seen this work is I had a blurb from the essayist Tim Kreider, who's probably one of my favorite living writers. He wrote, We Learn Nothing, and I wrote this book because I love you. He writes, um, for the New York Times pretty frequently, but he doesn't do social media. He doesn't respond to requests through, or he doesn't do social media now. And he doesn't, he's not easy to find or contact. But I was a super reply guy on his Facebook fan page for a couple of years, just talking about like responding to his pieces because I genuinely love them so much. I have quoted him endlessly in my own pieces and to other people and pushed on his, pushed his book on all my friends. So anyway, I genuinely just such a huge fan. And then one day he emailed me after all those comments over a period of years, like, sorry, I've been a stalker for a while, but um, that was another organic way. In my class for Jane, I said, try, if, if you're thinking of ways to network, just being somebody's reply guy who you genuinely are just a huge fan of, I think it can work. And you can also just email people. Um, I interviewed this sounds like a hit parade, but honestly, I'm just not covering the failures and the parts that didn't work. Uh, two other stories come to mind. Uh, Gary Steingart did not blurb the book, but he agreed to an interview for something else. And it was just because I sent him a Facebook friend request. And, you know, you don't, you wouldn't think somebody like that would A, accept it, but um, he did. And then um, another person who blurbed it had been my boss at a tiny little ad agency 10 years before. And we've been buddies since. He's a historian who's written biographies of Poe and Twain. Um, yes. And sometimes it's just meeting people through, I don't know, weird online channels that you're persistent about, I guess. Yeah. That seems to be like the most worthwhile use of social media, I think, yeah. for sure. And that's actually, that's how um, we had Kate Moore, the author of the Radium Girls on um, in season one in our podcast. I know, I know that's how I felt. She's like one of my favorite authors. And that's literally what happened. I was just like, I've been subscribing to her newsletter for however long, you know, years mm -hmm. and just like the biggest fan, love her work, make all my friends read her books. And yep. one day I was like, I'm just going to like try reaching out. And I did. And all I wanted to do was just like, tell her I'm obsessed with the Radium Girls and we just kind of struck up with this correspondence and then she came on our podcast. Just yeah. like incredible. <laughs> it's amazing that people, you know, I yeah. such a fan of her too now. I feel like I should write her an email. Uh, yeah, I authors love to get that stuff for very understandable reasons. This is such a lonely profession. Mm -hmm. I mean, I honestly, the, the further I go, the more I think that 
it's worth that writing itself is worthwhile for a flow state and b the friendships that you make. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it's genuinely true to me that those are the payoffs way more than any money at any stage or lasting feelings of, you know, security within yourself and the pause on the self-loathing and all that stuff that publication can bring in the short term. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it sounds so simple, but authors are just people too, who also get, you know, like dopamine hits from comments to their Instagram stories, you know, like, especially you can go looking for your favorite authors. And sometimes on certain platforms, they are huge and have a lot, but not often across every single one. So like, you know, if there's a platform where they post regularly, but their Instagram posts only get 10 to 12 comments, if you comment, it will probably be seen, you know, because it's, they don't get that many, you know, if there's hundreds, maybe it's less likely, but I love, yeah, this idea of being like a reply guy and just acting like a normal person who likes somebody's stuff and telling them. I mean, that's what, you know, never underestimate that authors and writers create things because they want people to like it and engage with it. And if you do that, you'll be one of their favorite people, you know? And it's sincere too. That's why it feels that you're not like really, it, it could sound like striving when we boil it down in these ways, but it's really just reaching out and talking about art that you obviously both love the person because they made it and you because you know you it hits you in a particular way I, that's yeah. a very natural and genuine kind of legit connection rather than just a random follow yeah and you know even outside of building connections obviously you can build connections with other um authors even your heroes that way but it's a decent way to grow and nurture your own platform. You know, when you start getting comments and stuff, just today I was looking at a TikToker's video that she has like 2.4 million followers and she is like more of a um, influencer. You know, she does like get ready with me and like vlogs and you know, this is how I spend my really productive mornings is watching her. videos um but anyway i was looking at her the comments to one of her just normal vlogs or whatever and she had replied there was hundreds of comments but she had personally replied to at least the first 50 of them you know even if it was just like a heart or something it was like i don't know i was very impressed by it i was like she has over two million followers and she's still i imagine taking the time to personally reply to as many of these people as i bet she possibly can and just i don't know i was like you know what i hear a lot about TikTok strategies and i never hear anyone say just like comment back reply to people engage with them you know like it's all about hooks and whatever and and that's all fine but it was like just talk to the people who follow you you know i was like anyway yeah i definitely think that's true truly another now that we're speaking about it i've kind of the whole path for me i've mostly I've almost made content out of my insecurities and failures along the way because it feels like something that I want to talk about anyway. And it's also, I've just noticed like it's easier to connect with people when you're leading with the, here's my overwhelming feeling of failure for the last 10 years. (laughs) You know, anyway, I was doing a local writers thing and I started talking about how I'd been worried during the publishing process. Like I didn't go to Harvard. I went to the University of South Carolina, which I loved, right? But anyway, 
I mentioned that. And then it turns out at this reading was the writer Rachel Beanland, whose second novel just came out. I freaking love her work. And it was just, she'd gone to USC too. That was the connection. She came up and introduced herself and was like, oh, you know, you don't have to worry. We got great education. <laughs> I was like, well, well, I hope so. Obviously she did. Uh, anyway, just the random ways you meet people. I think it can be good to not try to come across as more confident than you necessarily are. You don't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Can we switch gears a little bit? Because before we go, I would love to hear more about the book itself. And I'll tell you, I have not read it yet. Although I have a copy on the way it just, you were magical and scheduled this for time before it arrived. <laughs> Otherwise I would have looked at it already, but I did kind of read through, you know, the samples and everything. And, um, I'm just so curious, you know, how did you think about like taking this massive body of Poe's work and distilling it into these lessons? So for those of you who haven't seen the book, um, it's really cute and funny and it's, um, kind of distilled into 24 lessons from Poe's work. So how did you think about organizing it into, into those lessons and like, you know, learning, learning all those things. This was a long kind of stumbling process. You know, when I was saying, all right, so I wrote novels for 10 years and I couldn't get anywhere. And I was just, I fell into this terrible depression and uh, I started reading Poe for the first time since I was a little kid. So I read him as a little kid. I grew up in Richmond. Every little kid in Richmond reads him. Um, anyway, though, I hadn't thought of him in years, but at this moment when I was in a really dark place, I'm like, you know what? I want to read stories about torture and getting sucked into whirlpools. As you do. <laughs> it was tremendously comforting in a way I didn't expect, but maybe that was what my intuition was telling me. And I went down a rabbit hole with him, which was helpful. It's, you guys know well yourselves, I'm sure you have to be so obsessed to write nonfiction, I think. But the, in this case, I gulped it down. Like uh, his, the, his works in the Library of American Edition Library of American editions are probably 2000 pages altogether, like tissue thin little Bible pages. And I tore through the biographies too. Poe biography is a sprawling universe. I mean, there are 12 to 18 major Poe biographies probably. And anyway, it's, it's a vast universe onto itself, but I tore through it because I was just in this obsessive place where I found it was helping me with this, uh, you know, just rampant depression at the time. So that's where the idea came from. And I found mostly that reading about his life and how awful it was, you know, he lost everyone he ever loved. His career did not go the way he hoped it would. He was desperately poor. His greatest career dream to own his own magazine never worked out. Um, he was sneered at by critics in his day and smeared by his biographer even after his death. And the weirdly hopeful message of that, or at least that I saw when I was in that place is just, well, wow, he kept trying and look what he produced, a body of work that is still so famous and so beloved nearly 200 years later. So for all his suffering, he put in the work and it did pay off in the way I think he knew it could, which is a tremendously encouraging message for writers. Even if you don't, you know, you're not a genius on post level, it's an example that's really heartening. So I was trying to recreate that experience of reading the biographies and, and the autobiographical interpretations or links with the stories and poems themselves, like what was going on in his life when he wrote The Raven and so on. So I ended up writing the book. So it's almost like a biography of Poe, 
with comments about his work as they came out during the course of his life. And then distilling like kind of sarcastic, kind of satirical, but also sincere lessons out of each because Poe did everything wrong and it worked out so spectacularly well. So I think it, if, you're, if you feel like a screw up yourself and I do a lot of the time, it can make you feel better. And it's also just kind of a funny inversion of typical self-help about thinking positively, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's so cool. Are there any like memoir pieces? Like, do you kind of share about your own, you know, journey through some of those emotions? I'm just curious. In the, you'll see it in the introduction and in the coda. Initially, when I first sold the project, it was way more of a memoir of reading Poe at this place in my life. And that's when I was hearing those, Mm. I don't know how to break this out. She's just another person writing essays on the internet, uh, which isn't untrue. So uh, I, I ended up making it more and more about him as I looked to sell the project. And that ended up being such a gift because after a certain point, I didn't want to linger on this episode in my life. It was just so dark. Yeah. It was more fun to take it in a mainstream direction. And now, I mean, it's in the humor section in Bard the Noble. And uh, the fact that it went in a happy and fun direction, I think was the absolute best possible outcome, even though that only came about after getting rejected so many times. That's so interesting because we hear from a lot of authors, a lot of memoir authors, particularly who get told by agents and publishers, oh, if you made this into a self-help book, maybe we could do something with it. But because it's a memoir, we are just not interested. You have to have, you have to be a celebrity. You have to blah, 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 you know, all the things. And so that often to a lot of authors feels discouraging. Like my story is not good enough. I'm not, you know, and all, all of those, all of those terrible things at which point they should read your book. Um, but for you, like that actually worked out and, and made it better. So I'm, I'm just curious for a lot of our, you know, authors listening, you know, sometimes that advice is good. Sometimes it's the right advice you need. Yeah. I, people, the more prestigious a category is the less opportunity there is in it. Probably everybody wants to write literary fiction, wants to write a brilliant genius novel that wins a Nobel thousands and thousands yeah. tens of people competing for that, but not everybody aspires to write self-help. So there's more opportunity in the category because it's not prestigious. Um, it's also a category I've interacted with, <laughs> you know, I've read a lot of self-help books and I'm comfortable with that. I know some self-help authors. I think they're very smart and cool. Um, I part of like re- getting to a place of making it into a self-help book was just making myself laugh and joking around with my friends. All the puns are now still in the book, but like the power of positive thinking, the popus driven life, we, as we were joking about these things and just punning endlessly, uh, those ended up going into the book of like, this is the approach. Yeah. The power of positive thinking um, to invert those old tropes from self-help that I think a lot of people are rightly critical of, right? Where it kind of puts too much pressure on individuals, ignores systemic things, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That's so funny. And I mean, a great lesson too, in just like being yourself and kind of letting, letting your natural humor, letting your natural personality, you know, go into your book and people will be drawn to that. People want the authenticity. So I love that. I think so. And maybe like I don't know, maybe it could be the case for other people that they're just more comfortable writing about themselves, um, in which case that's totally fine. But I found it to be such a gift to not have it be about me, the entire book that is. Yeah. 
And it's, it sounds good. Uh, I don't know for sure that this is what, you know, your original pitch was, but like some people who kind of try to straddle the teaching memoir, um, like a self-helpy memoir or a, oh, here comes my dog. Um, <laughs> um, like a memoir that has a lot of self-help lessons in it or a self-help book that is incredibly narrative. Um, like both of those can work. I get a lot of clients who want to write a book like that. Um, but when you, you know, just like veer, veer stronger into one genre than the other, like just stay, okay, okay, I'm staying out of memoir. I am going to write, not that you can't include stories from your own life, but, um, but you decide to go, um, to like really just commit to one genre and not try to kind of straddle two. Um, yeah, it can be really great. And when experience like editors and authors, I mean, uh, agents give you that feedback, it's usually valuable, you know? For sure. I definitely heard it and it helped push me harder in a direction. So that's kind of where it started to come from. It was outside pressure as well. I found one thing that seems to have worked well was just telling in my book proposal, I'm very clear about where I think it's going to fit in the store. And it's kind of like something that's said in marketing, like, don't make me think, just present right. me or yeah. present a considered opinion. So I think that can be helpful too. I was saying in the beginning, it's, it's either in the humor section, I guess it could be self-help, but it's more of like a humorous self-help title. Well, and I happen to know because I read your query letter that is posted online for, you know, if anybody wants to go looking for it, I'm sure they could find it pretty easily. Um, and your Substack or website, or just, you know, probably Google, um, your name plus query letter, but, um, you did, uh, a great job of expressing that through comp titles, which we have a whole episode about last season. It was one of our most popular episodes about all the ways to use comp titles. Most people just think of them in terms of, you know, like, but different. Here's how it's, you know, there's the crossover on, you know, in that terms, um, in those terms, people don't always um, think of them in terms of the query letter and just des description of your book. And you actually comped it to You Are Badass by Jen Sincero. You know, obviously and, in combination, what was the other one? Oh, uh, Alanda Botton's How Proofs Can Change Your Life. Right. Yeah. But then it was that mixed with You Are Badass, which... And the publisher of You Are a Badass is who bought it. So that's cool. And it'd be very straightforward. Yeah, that was yeah. not necessarily intentional on my part, but it definitely seems to have worked. Yeah, but it's just a brilliant example of instead of saying it's going to be funny and sarcastic and whatever, not that you can't spell it out so clearly, but it, just by saying it will have the vibes of, you know, um, you are a badass. Not, those are my words, you know, not the way that you put it in the letter, but you know, anyone who's read that book, anyone who's in the industry, because it's like, you know, this mega bestseller kind of category buster, um, they know exactly what you mean. All you have to say is that you don't have to say, you know, go into like lines and lines of, of describing your your voice and whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, that was just a great example of that. And if you're learn if you want to hear us talk a lot more about that, go back and listen to the comps episode because we. Um. Ariel, anything else? No, I just, 
Kat, where can people find you? I mean, we've mentioned your Substack and your website. Where do you like to best interact with people? I love Substack and I will usually subscribe back if people find me there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm not that uh, interesting on Twitter, but I'd love to meet people there too. And you can find me on my website. I have my email address prominently listed because I do love hearing from people. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not hard to find. There's only one version of this last name, apparently. Are you working on another book? I am. Yeah. So I'm like kind of in the trenches. It's weird to talk about something that worked because I'm in a phase of not knowing whether this one's going to and hoping yeah. it will in the scramble. I thought it would be so much easier to sell a book and write a book after having done it not finding that to be true at all. Mm. It's very different than both. So that's part of the journey, if I'm going to have to use the word. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it about another um, dead, sad guy? I wish. I wanted to write a book about Mary <laughs> for a hot minute there. Um, but I just decided yeah. to try and do the same thing again. No, this one's about TV and fandoms. I've been really getting into oh, cool. notions of I've come to be, I've come to believe that fandoms are like an incredibly important force in American life and Western life. So I've been down the rabbit hole yes. of movies, fan cultures and, and so on. So it's kind of in that vein. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to have you back that's to talk amazing. about that too. Cause that sounds really interesting. I think for especially nonfiction yeah. fiction too, fandoms can be a humongous opportunity. Like, so Poe has this huge fandom, but he's hardly, mm. and you can write books on topics which have large fandoms and all of a sudden you've got an audience like the Benedict Cumberbatch book yep. which you're going to have to find super exciting please let us know how that goes because we'd love to to hear more about this journey especially like just the the second time around you know what's different with a di very different kind of book so yeah I'll, I'm sure I'll have plenty to say <laughs> <laughs> I get to I'm talking about it so cool well thank you so much Thanks for being part of the Hungry Authors community. If you like this episode, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Hungry Authors or HungryAuthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen. Thank you.